You're going to go to sleep now, aren't you, dear? Oh, my God. And I'll take over the whole <clears throat> podcast. I don't need any suggestions to sleep. Just look, look, at the watch. look at the watch. A nice, shiny watch. No. I'll, I'll fix it with the mesmer instead. Oh, that's even worse. Or, or, or do a sleepy button. <laughs> hey, come on, you've got a sleepy <laughs> button. Behave. <laughs> I can't behave. Like it's impossible. Persona back in place. Oh, Hey guys, and welcome back to Young to Live By. Now today we've got a one hour long show all about the transference and on hypnotherapy. It began as an episode of Ask a Depth Psychologist, but the question just, the answers just kept flowing basically, and it became a full scale conversation as to what precisely the transference is. First of all, that's like the first half, first third to half of the podcast. And then the last little bit is all about hypnotherapy, why hypnotherapy is effective, why a clinician should use hypnotherapy as part of their suite of tools if they want to be optimally effective. And indeed ends with a, well, the last 10 minutes anyway, is Steve giving a case study of how he treated somebody using hypnotherapy to quite literally take that person down off of a cross in terms of a symbolic conversion reaction they were happening. And it's quite, it's quite a good story. And I think this podcast is an important part of our canon that we've built up together on this channel. So I hope you guys enjoy it, even despite my bedraggled INTP lockdown look appearance right now, but never mind. So the the first question, which I'm going to ask to Steve and Pauline in the past, comes from our friend Hubert. And Hubert asks, is it better that a man goes to a male therapist and a woman goes to a female therapist? How do issues of transference play out in this case? What do you do about them? What do you think, Steve and Pauline, in the past? I think it really depends on what they're presenting for and in what environment. You know, if it's an NHS referral, they may not have a choice. You know, they may well be, you know, just have to go with who's there because of the pressure NHS services are under. Uh, the way that we would handle that in, in the NHS is that we always work together anyway, so we would be interchangeable. Um, and sometimes people express a preference in advance, which helps, uh, although that can also be revealing about what might be going on in the background. So from our point of view as clinicians, everything depends upon the initial contact and what you can derive from that. But as you move on, of course, and particularly if you work in depth, and you're more likely to be doing that in private practice Mm. than in the NHS because of resources, uh, then these interesting issues can occur. And of course, there's also the issue of um, sexual orientation as well because that can affect it. What do you think, Paul? Yeah, I I agree with you. I think it depends on the context, doesn't it, very much. Mm. Um, As you say, in the NHS, you don't really... Well, so you don't have a choice about who you see. It's probably mainly women who who turn to counselling, who are drawn to counselling. So if you if you're accessing yeah. counselling services, the yeah. chances are it's probably more likely yeah. to be a woman. Would you yeah. say? Yeah, if it were that. I mean, obviously, if it were that, yes. we did counselling and psychotherapy services in the NHS. So yes. Yeah. And hypnotherapy services. Yeah. So. But if, I mean, services separate to our own. If if somebody was, you know. Oh right. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, it, it tends to be. Um, my recall, and we can actually check some stats because mm. we've got some stats from NHS patients that we've had from some of the clinics. Um, we could probably look at it, but I would guess it's probably 60-40 and not much more than that. We were still getting a lot of male referrals because men would turn up with a lot of psychosomatic issues or with um, a physical condition which may be psychological or is concurrent with a physical issue. So. 
it's it's mm. not you know if you go purely for counselling then yeah I would say probably women because men mm. tend to withhold things if it's for mm. personal development or psychotherapy and particularly these days probably I'd say it's reversing I'd say more men than women um, so it just depends on your demographic but mm. specifically about the problems or what would you say Paul on that well I. Uh, are we, are we talking about uh, percentages in terms of men and women who, who access therapy or are we talking about what the provision is? I think, it just I think depends we, on well, what... the, the question was more to do with how the dynamics mm. are affected if you have a male or a female mm. therapist with mm. respect to a male or a female client rather than that, mm. I think. Mm. Yeah, well, if, if I'm sort of relating it to, to our own practice, then very often... I think at the start people aren't too concerned because we would always do like an initial interview and we'd yeah. establish an awful lot just at that initial yes. stage, wouldn't we, about we what somebody yeah. might or might not want. Mm. Um, I guess we were quite uniquely placed early because obviously we were a couple and a married couple. Yeah. Um, and if somebody, say, started working with me and it became apparent that it would be um, more useful for them to work with you, then obviously we'd swap yeah. over so we worked interchangeably like you say but that's quite probably quite a unique situation it's to quite be unique in. yeah and my, my recall particularly because I, I think mainly the nhs environment because it was such high pressure oh yeah that um it would be quite rare that someone would want to see me once they'd seen pauline they may want to see both of us but they wouldn't necessarily want to swap over so in, in the sense that um Again, the uniqueness of being a couple will be very helpful. Uh, and also very often we would see, say, a man, uh, and then the wife would end up coming in as yes. well. And if that was just to see me at that point, I would certainly suggest that Pauline comes in because you avoid the problems then of uh, freezer crowd. Yes, you do. You know, straight away. Yeah. And you balance the energies out, which is important. And if the issue is one in depth that involves transference in a Jungian dimension, which is the alchemical element, then that's best sorted out between two people. And depending on the orientation, male, female, female, male, provided that the people are heteronormative with respect to their sexuality, then that is usually what you would look for. But I will qualify that and say that very often, and I've said this in previous podcasts, in fact, we both have, that in men, for example, the anima does not, even in the heteronormative, you know, heterosexual man, doesn't always take on the form of a woman. And I've also experienced working with a lot of gay couples and bisexuals, both sexes, and you, you, you find things that are perhaps unexpected in a theoretical sense with respect to how the relating function is projected. Um, a lot of the women, for example, the gay women, the lesbians, uh, were projecting their animus onto me with an erotic element to it. And this is not to say that it was sexual in that sense, but erotic in the sense of an understanding of the alchemical elements involved, the deep structures. On the surface, that would be the last thing that they would be thinking of because of their sexual orientation wasn't that way. But the minute you go, you go down deep, then it does change. So it's difficult to say. Would you agree on that from your experience? Uh, yes, I think you're right, Steve. I think it's it's difficult to have a rule of thumb about it, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Um, 
well, it was just useful for us, to, like I say, to be a married couple and to have that flexibility yeah, that for would, people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I appreciate not everyone who's who's accessing um, therapy or, or healthcare in some way um, is fortunate enough to mm. maybe, mm. you know, access those kinds of services. But yeah. um, I, I think there's a. I think as you were saying before about uh, the three's a crowd thing. I think I think that's particularly important mm. because. Um, Mm. There the could almost be, if you're working with a couple, there could be an element of feeling that the therapist is taking size, particularly yeah. if they share a, a particular psychological type or style. Yeah. Um, and so the more that you can balance out the odds mm. and, and appear to be objective, and in that sense, before the relationship rather than for any individual person, then yeah. that's, that's preferable. But that is, that is an, an ideal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it does get complicated it with does. couples and with families. It does, yeah. Um, but maybe getting back to the spirit of the question, yes. where I think he was perhaps suggesting <clears throat> that uh, there is a, a definite difference in the relationship, which is a field phenomenon, mm. if you have male-female mm. as opposed to male-male. Yes, and, and, and vice versa. And that is definitely the case. Uh, and it's, it's manifest immediately. It, you don't have to go deep, but if you do go deep, it gets a wider perspective yeah. I, I would say yeah I think from yeah. the therapist's point of view there are different challenges depending yeah. on which it is yeah um in some regards it's probably more challenging to work with somebody who's oppositely sex yeah. to you yeah. than the same sex and for obvious yeah. reasons yeah um so yeah um, it's just it's something to be mindful of, isn't it? And uh, or I was going to sort of raise the idea to pseudo androgyny, but that gets yeah, that yeah. can be a little bit tricky depending on how you conceptualise things. Can't yeah, it? yeah. Um, it's not a politically correct uh, no. construct no. these days. Um, my view on political correctness is, with any political fashion, is that it will pass. <clears throat> so, from the perspective of say the nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties. It did have uh, valid currency insofar as it wasn't or wouldn't have been criticised. Uh, and, and my view again is that the, the observation remains the same. The political interpretation of it will change. The observation of the facts remains the same. Um, mm. would, would you want to introduce that? Because it's, it's got nothing necessarily to do with sexual orientation either. You know, or anything like that. Do you want to? No, no, it hasn't. It, well, it's a difficult know. one because, yeah. in, in to some extent, you probably have to talk more in classical Jungian terms you to would, to, yeah. to get yeah. to it. Mm. So, if, if it was, um, if it was thinking of myself working with with a woman, you you might get a woman in, for example, who is animus possessed in in that uh, traditional Jungian sense, who might be trying to recover a femininity through a relationship with a female therapist. Um, obviously, you know, that's, that's an unconscious process. Mm. It's not something that somebody deliberately intends to do, but they might seek a female therapist for that reason mm. um, because they're, they're looking to, I guess, get their, their own psycho psychological equilibrium back and... Um, Therefore, that, that will form part of the transference relationship mm. between the therapist and, and that person. But it's, it's definitely something we observed oh, in yeah. our clinical yeah. work in, over and over, over again. Over and over again, in males and females. And, yes. and, and these would be, I'll <clears throat> use the term again, heteronormative oh, people. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, and that yeah. is not to make a value judgment, that's all. to make an observation. Yeah. Yeah. And this uh, pseudo-androgyny was expressed both through the persona and through the self-concept. 
So it wasn't just a mask, it was on the inside as well. Um, and as Pauline said, in that case, you, you would um, get an almost erotic, but in a Jungian sense, not yes. in a literal Freudian sense, mm. attachment to a therapist of the same sex, yes. biological sex. Yes. Because a person has had an injury to their self-concept and their identity and has been uh, a lowering and abasement of that within themselves. So they express an, an undifferentiated gender on the outside through the persona and with respect to their inner world as well. And they may well have uh, gotten themselves into some kind of relationship issue if they were married, for example. Um, and then they find themselves being drawn to modelling, but at this sort of erotic level mm. of intensity onto the therapist. So you can get, in those cases, a same-sex uh, projection. Uh, you, you, can, you can also get it, for example, um, and the, this was fairly common, more common actually than people would perhaps want to believe now, mm. but again, because of politics filtering things, <clears throat> You might get a situation where a woman lacked confidence in herself in her marriage and therefore abated or sublimated her femininity and her attractiveness at work, say in an office environment, uh, and then was exposed to a man who was a bit you know, unclear with respect to his masculinity. And I don't mean that in a politically correct or incorrect way as would be interpreted now. Uh, but simply that uh, he would be perhaps, say, an office Romeo that had a stalking horse kind of approach to accessing women. He wouldn't be able to compete with the alpha men yes. on his masculinity. He wouldn't be good looking or anything like that. But he could he'd be very nice and unthreatening. Yes. Uh, and then the woman would then project her own abated femininity onto this man. Mm. And that would draw her in as an attraction mm. to him, which, of course, would feed into his predatory instincts yeah. and maximizing his, his, yeah. his approach so that's actually very very common and it, will, it, it still goes on yeah it's quite a um, clever tactic really and i and i, I yeah. think it goes under the radar because of the like yeah. you say of, of the way it appears on the surface but it's another bluebeard tactic exactly effectively yeah, exactly and it's still a way of predating and, it, it and drawing women in it's it's, an, it's it is it's a worked example in yes. the real world of, yeah. of how the bluebeard story the bluebeard myth can, can work itself through um but it, it relies on the woman in this instance hmm. um hmm. feeling abated with respect to her identity uh, as a woman um, whereas she'd probably be able to fight off the alphas. In fact, she might not be interested in them. She may be in a marriage with an alpha male mm. or a relationship where she is being abused in some way uh, and therefore to prevent herself from being abused, she would rather you know, dumb down her attractiveness. Now, the, these predatory guys who occupy that pseudo-androgynous level in the pecking order, if you like, will be able to pick up on that and then we'll be able to go in and, and um, do what they can in that way. Yeah. But the psychology side of it, very often of the woman, is that they project what Jung would have called the self-archetype, but in an undifferentiated form. There would be a biological man there who had feminine qualities and would appear to be whole and complete. So she's projecting her now undifferentiated femininity onto the man, who is male, and therefore an animus figure, and those of you who are familiar with uh, classical Jung will realise that the animus is important for a woman for accessing the self-archetype. So the appearance of wholeness in her unconscious in relationship to this individual is significant. But she won't then necessarily see how 
this guy is a predator. You know, so that mm. that kind of thing can go on as well. Mm. You can get down in therapy too. There mm. there are there are plenty of male therapists who adopt that as a tactic to either acquire, if you like, empathy with a client, yes. a female client, mm. or where cases of abuse occur and they do. They do. Sadly. Yeah. Uh, in, in the helping professions and in therapy, they will use it because they have victims, they have vulnerable people who are coming in to see them. Mm. So there's all sorts of ways that, that, that this, this can work. Um, in a healthy sense, though, with um, a therapist who works ethically and who understands their own unconscious, then they can help a person to begin to bring out whatever they, it is that they should be in terms of their persona or their orientation or whatever it is through the relationship and the transference. Um, but every situation is unique. Mm. And yes, you do get, obviously, clear starting points, such as male, female, yes. or, or whatever. Yes. Um, but it's a process of uncovering that and, and monitoring that situation uh, as a field phenomenon, a relational phenomenon b- between you. Mm. If you don't mind, I know I'm not subscribed at the $10 tier or higher, but I have a follow-up question to that. And, it, and it's simply about, obviously we talked about genders, male and female, but also what about age? Obviously, this is relevant to myself and also maybe some of the guys who want to come in and follow in this path. If you're a young person, how do you reckon that dynamic will play in? And in my mind specifically, it would be, say, a young person in their 20s. And what if there's someone in their 60s or 70s? Would that tie into any of this? Would that make the, the therapy more difficult? Are there more complications? You know, things around that sort of line. Yeah, it can do. There's certainly factors. I mean, we, 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 we obviously worked from when we were very young with people we who were significantly yes. older than us, yeah. so sometimes 40 or even 50 years older than yeah. we were at, at that time. And Yeah. Yeah, it, it all plays in. Would you say there's often a, a child transference, if you like, a parental, but in reverse? You like, mean now? Yeah. More well, so now? Not now, because we're older. <laughs> uh, but um, when, we, when we were young, like James. Yes. Know, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to travel back in time. Yeah. 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 And, and, st- and still growing hair with appropriate, <laughs> appropriate thickness and at an appropriate rate, that kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah at, at that time, I, I would find, for example, that older women would try and make me into their son or something like that. Yeah. You know, um, hmm. or the son they never had, that kind of thing. And you, you do have to get around that. You know, um, older, older guys, actually. I, I can remember working with, uh, have you ever heard of SOE? Special operations executives. They were really tough guys and women, by the way. They used to go into uh, occupied territories in the Second World War, parachuting in civilian clothes, intelligence officers, spies, that kind of thing. I, I worked mm. with a guy who was, who was in SOE, and he'd obviously seen a hell of a lot of life. Uh, and even though I thought I had for my age at that time, uh, there was a default respect towards him. Uh, but he didn't let it get in his way. Yes. Which was interesting, and that, that you know confirmed a lot of my expectations of what it means to mature with age, that you shouldn't hold your age against someone who is young, at all, you know. Um, it depends what's being transferred or projected, doesn't it? That's really, very true. Yeah, I, th- I think like you were, you were saying before, if somebody um, was looking or, or, or had a need for wholeness, you might get the self archetype projected yeah. onto you, even mm. if they were older than you and you you were relatively younger than them. Yeah. it just it really just depends what's trying to work itself through in that person. That's true. Yeah, that, that's true. That's very true indeed. 
But I, I agree with you, Steve, when you say that I think if you if you have a, a calling to this field and you're absolutely serious about working on yourself mm. and, you, and your commitment to what you do, mm. um, I think if, even if you're relatively you know younger, um, then it's still it's still something that you can pursue and still something you can be very effective with. Yeah. Yeah. But I think I think then the thing that you have to have more than anything is authenticity really an yeah. authentic desire to work on yourself and, and to open yourself up to the material yeah, and to make it through. clear to her to whoever you're working with that that you you let them know that that's what you're doing or what you've yeah. done even though you that there might be quite a bit of an mm. age difference that's true yeah i mean you're 23 nearly 24 i, I started working mentored by a psychotherapist mm. part-time uh, in a voluntary role in a psychiatric hospital at your age um yeah i mean it can be done if in the nhs in particular because there are young nurses and there are young everybody everywhere so to speak because people do have to learn and move through that institution yes it's less of an issue than mm. if you work in private practice then it's more likely that people will expect you to be a tad older but you can be a clinical psychologist in say the age of 25 26 yes you yeah can. um so mm. i i wouldn't worry and I think what Pauline says is right because personal qualities. People will pick up on that oh, yes. before anything. They'll, they'll see through you if you fake. Absolutely, yeah. they will. Yeah. yeah. But but if, but if you if you're real and you can demonstrate in the right way mm. that you are actually in tune and you are living the life yourself, that will come through. Yeah, I mean that's it's just that's really an energy thing as yeah. much as anything else, yes. isn't it? It it is. That's that's an interesting way of putting it, an energy thing, because I've I've encountered doctors myself, of course, who are really young. Like I guess I guess around my age, actually, if I say that's really really young. Um, and there's something about some of them which I don't necessarily trust, and it's not against their ability or their skill. It's more their vibe that they give off. There are some guys who are like who are young and they they're on it. Like especially like guys I see on YouTube actually who are like more like public facing doctors. They've, you know, they've got. I know I'm, tr I'm growing a little bit of chin hair at the moment because I've been very, very lazy. But like, but they, yes. but, but like, they, these guys, they don't have any of that. They've, you know, they've still got spots on their face and everything else, and they're on it. And they get patients who are older than themselves. So I guess it is just um, an integrity or an authenticity. It, it is, and, mm. and 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 people who are like that, they just they tend to just be very good at st establishing rapport. Anyway, they almost do it naturally. Um, and I think where that's the case, that that has to be that has to be valued, and it's horses for courses, really, yeah. isn't it? it? I mean, if if someone, even if they're relatively young, can can come in and then get the job done, and they help to transform somebody's life, that's it, isn't it? it doesn't it really doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. I mean, I, I've had people come in um, when I was working privately and say oh god like it's you know you're not what i was expecting at all i you know i think they probably wanted somebody you know who who was in the 50s or 60s Actually and, is now. thank you um and, and more of almost like an agony aunt type and and that was what they were expecting so to find somebody say late 20s early 30s was inhibiting for them um and you know 
sometimes when that happened they didn't come back and or, or I might encourage them to see somebody who um, was more you know closely associated with what their expectations were so it, it just depends yeah you, you, you can't uh, tell no. by the way when, when, when she was getting the odd and it was rare response like that from people she'd already been managing a psychiatric unit you know, an acute psychiatry, uh, but you put somebody then in a private setting, yes. as we were saying before, away yes, from very good point. The, yeah. the culture, which has a lot of young yeah. people coming it does. in and coming and it through. supports you, doesn't it? It does support yeah. you, yeah. 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 So it's yeah. easier in that sense in the NHS because you get reference authority from the uh, referral process. Yes. You know, and you know, that, that can be transferred over into medical centres, GP practices, because obviously yeah. if a doctor trusts you, yeah. or if a whole practice or group of practices mm. collectively trust you, mm. then you get that yeah. referent yes. standing. Yes, that's very you true, because you, yeah. you, you're part of a hierarchy yeah. then. Yeah, you are. And so yeah. to some extent, it, it's protective of you, because yeah. there's, which is a good and a bad thing, um, yeah. but there's always somebody else to refer to or to defer to mm. if you have a problem. And groups being groups, they tend to, you know, sadly close ranks sometimes. Mm. Um, yeah, but when you're in private practice, you're on your own. Yeah, you are. And and, yeah, and you much. and pretty much the, well, yes, you can refer mm. to GPs, but mm. but cutting it at the sort of the front line is is down to you essentially, mm. isn't it? Is. It is. It is. Yeah, so it does it does help being older, but you can have people you know who are a lot older. Who haven't got much experience other than mm. the passage of time in other words they've, they've yeah. lived but they may not have that much time in for their age mm. so then it's an issue of persona rather than substance yeah so if you can assert it without being aggressive your knowledge when you're younger and superficial but in how you're able to read people's needs in the immediate moment Mm. and uh, understand where they're going with their material, mm. you ha then have rapport. Mm. And that rapport is essential, for example, in hypnosis. Uh, and the best training courses will teach people how to obtain and maintain that, and therefore gain the proper confidence of the people that you're working with, mm. in particular with their unconscious mind. So this is why we say that you know the, the top-level hypnotherapy courses, in terms of skills, nothing comes near them nothing at all it may not be enough for working in depth on its own although there is an argument to say that it can be but those skills are absolutely essential because you can use them barefoot you couldn't do that with classical psychoanalysis for example you can't use that in a barefoot way but you can with hypnosis and hypnotherapy you, you, you can attend to emergency situations where people are bleeding out yeah. or with burns yeah. or are in an acute state of, of anxiety or shock you can do great <clears throat> great good with those hypnotherapy skills but you do have to practice them under pressure to be able to use them under pressure this is why that we released the hypnotherapy handbook about a week or so ago because it's because it also includes it's, it's built of course as being with um, hypnotherapy handbook with rapport and communication skills which if you actually actually read in, into the manual and you guys who picked it up so far thank you and i hope it's useful to you of course that's the bulk of it is how you can get rapport and, and interestingly enough with this it's not just with other people it's with yourself at the same time if it's for self-development absolutely yeah mm. absolutely mm. 
Um, your normal counselling level of skills mm. and your normal CBT level of awareness of yourself and, and of the, the therapeutic relationship. And CBT, they call it a cognitive alliance. A cognitive alliance? It's got to be whole person-centred, your approach. The whole person actually extends beyond that to the whole situation that you're in, conscious and unconscious. So when there are two physical people there, there are at minimum four in the room because you include their unconscious minds. But if you're a good hypnotherapist, a really good one, and if you are trained also in psychodynamics, you know that the room is very crowded. Every influence that's ever been on that person has come in the door with them and also with you. Uh, and so it, it gets very, very crowded and there's not much oxygen around and you need to know how to manage that energy and that process very, very carefully. But if you're at the level of a cognitive alliance or, or superficial counselling skills, yeah. then what you can achieve will be proportionally superficial. So the people who train with us get trained classically, far more classically than today classical therapists are trained. Because we start at the beginning, we start with hypnosis, which is the absolute foundation mm -hmm. of all psychodynamic approaches. Mm -hmm. It's also the origin of behaviour therapy and of rational therapy, which is, if you like, the beginning of the cognitive therapies as well. Only those guys, when they lost their connection to hypnosis, also lost how hypnosis has moved on considerably, as it has, for example, in the 60 years since Jung's death. So a lot of people are prejudiced about hypnosis because they don't understand it. It's as simple as that. It's caused by ignorance. But I would say the most effective therapists are people who know how to use those techniques within the, the, the wider model that they use. And the widest possible models to use are the transpersonal psychotherapies, and they are antithetical to hypnotherapy on political and dogmatic grounds anyway, so they disqualify themselves. And then the psychodynamic schools, which have all historically grown from it anyway. It's probably pertinent at this point to mention this book, Hypnosis, a Jungian Perspective by James Hall, the late James Hall. Now he was one of the best of his generation of, of Jungians, an American. And he wrote extensively on dreaming and on complexes as well as on hypnosis. And in that book, although he doesn't specifically use what I would personally class as the better techniques within hypnotherapy, he forms a bridge uh, between the classical Jungian approach, which rejected hypnosis prematurely, in my, in my view, uh, mm. and the, the, the absolute top draw stuff, which is Ernest Rossi, without a doubt. Um, but what's very interesting about James Hall, as, as I say, he was one of the better theoreticians and practical therapists when it came to dreams and dream analysis and also working on complexes and we've certainly been very influenced by by his work uh, we, we've modified it a little should we say to take it beyond what we perceive as some of the limitations that he had because everybody has limitations we do uh, and other people do as well and this is part of the joy of learning and mm. empirical experiences working those things out you say. yeah i was just going to is he the guy that had locked-in syndrome yeah he, he he died tragically unfortunately with uh, locked-in syndrome which is uh, mm -hmm. a terrible terrible way to suffer yeah. uh, in the end, apparently, his only means of communicating was through drawings and, and through art. 
he, he was able to do that but unable mm. to speak and for a man who'd given so much mm. and had produced so much that was of value to other people, yeah. and, and we respect his work highly mm. as well. And it, you know, in that sense, it lives on, I guess, because mm. we honour him through our work, and we're doing that now mm. by recommending him. It, it was such a such a terrible just a shame. Sad end, isn't it? Yeah, I would recommend his book on dreaming, by the way. Um, I'll, I'll just see if I can <laughs> recover it from the old shelf. Dreaming by James A. Hall, M.D. This is really good. This is probably as good as an orthodox contemporary Jungian book on how to work with dreams will get before they start getting silly and losing it, which a lot of them uh, frankly do. You know, they, they disappear up their mystical uh, lower GI tracks um, and yes. unfortunately lose the plot. Um, to get beyond that, I would work with uh, with Rossi's material uh, and how he manipulates gene expression and, and many, many other things as well. See, he works very closely with dreams and with hypnosis too. Sorry, James, you were saying? Oh, no, I was just going to ask you about the, the locked-in syndrome, just out of, of curiosity. Because my understanding of locked-in syndrome was you were completely paralysed and you couldn't like you couldn't really communicate at all. Was he able to just, say, move one hand or something to while he was lying down? It was a little bit like... What's, what's called hypnopictography uh, in, in the old school hypnotherapy, which is where you would put somebody in a trance and they would utilize idiomotor movements to be able to, to draw or write something. Milton Erickson, the greatest hypnotist, hypnotherapist, who was a psychiatrist, a medic in America in the 20th century, um, was paralyzed with polio as a child. And he discovered the power of hypnosis before he was even formally trained by anybody else in it. And he, he got himself to be able to move through also suggestion and imagery when he was paralysed. Now, he did suffer from uh, the after effects, didn't he, of polio for the, for, for the rest of his life. Um, but that also allowed him to understand the importance of communication with the unconscious because he'd been there in a kind of locked-in syndrome, a physically locked-in syndrome, due to the effects of that disease. And he, that also trained him to understand language patterning and what the unconscious will respond to. Uh, so from that he gains something. So, but to put it back into uh, the context of, uh, of uh, James Hall and what he was probably doing, that was probably all that could be allowed to come through. He would have understood hypnosis. He did understand it. He understood dreaming. He, under, he understood, understood uh, the unconscious really, really well. And perhaps somebody who didn't have those skills or that experience couldn't even have achieved that. But what a sad ending mm. to a good life. It's a great shame. But yeah, you, you, can use, um, you can use hypnotherapy to access complexes, to deconstruct them. Uh, it's, as I say, to affect gene expression, there's, there's so many things you can do. Obviously, for developing uh, rapport and communication skills, which are absolutely essential in any kind of therapy, it's it's par excellence. There's there's nothing like it. Um, the worst hypnotherapy schools, you know, the, the, and courses, the kind of things you mm. get online, that are basically just stage hypnotism and and low level skills are dangerous because. Mm. The induction of trance and suggestion is actually a very easy thing to do. Mm. Most salespeople do it. Mm. They manipulate all people the all the time. Mm. For example, that's why NLP is popular, neuro-linguistic programming, with salespeople. Mm -hmm. Because it can be a vehicle for suggestion that can be turbocharged. 
Um, it's all about, as I say, about uh, about communication, but specifically in, in a clinical sense, and then working with yourself, uh, you can achieve things. That, and I've, I've said this before on podcasts, and some people have not liked to hear that. The suggestion that it might be better in some cases than active imagination. Well, James, you and I have worked with active imagination together as part of your mentorship and, yes. and training with us. And I think James will be able to confirm that there are different levels of that according to your understanding and oh, yeah. experience. And that hypnotherapy skills will make your active imagination more effective for a start because you'll be able to understand and appreciate whether you're having it for real or whether it's a fantasy. Because one of the problems about acquiring a skill like active imagination through a book is that you can delude yourself and think you're actually doing it and you're not. You're still actually operating inside your normal consciousness mm. or under the direction of your complexes, your unconscious complexes. So if you just, just dive straight in to the psyche without knowing where you're actually standing at that moment in time or what you're up against is ill-advised because the best outcome you're going to get is self-delusion. Mm -hmm. If, however, you have a proper channel of communication open with yourself and people like Milton Erickson developed the way to do it against massive, almost impossible adversity and he helped other people who were in a similar state, this is pressure-tested in a way that a lot of the conventional psychodynamic and psychoanalytic techniques have never been pressure-tested and got the kind of results that they never got. But when you blend the two together, then you get something really special. Now, it, it's well known, Sigmund Freud rejected hypnotherapy as well. And he did that quite early on with Joseph Breuer when he, when he found that it amplified transference. The case of Anna O, for example, the famous one. And that's when he developed his pressing technique, which is oddly very, very close to the kind of thing that Franz Anton Mesmer was doing in the 18th century. So it's still actually borderline hypnotherapy. And then he went into free association and then the normal analytic relationship of the, the patient lying down on the couch with the therapist sitting out of sight uh, and that kind of thing. But that's still trans-inducing. Later on in his career, he admitted that one day the gold, as he put it, of psychoanalysis would one day be have to be alloyed with the copper of suggestion. In other words, he was saying that there would be one day a hypnoanalysis, a blending of hypnosis and psychoanalysis. And that did happen. That did. There, there, there are hypnoanalytic schools which are very Freudian focused. Um, it was rare in the Jungian circles because Jungians, frankly, a lot of them think of themselves as being so special and so different that they wouldn't deem to think that there's anything that, that could inform them on their practice mm -hmm. beyond the original works of Carl Gustav Jung in the collected works. That's it. It's as far as they, they, they want to go. Uh, and that's a severe limitation because Jung died 60 years ago and our knowledge base has moved on. He himself wouldn't have wanted that. And the techniques that, that uh, Freud and Jung used were direct and authoritarian, weren't they? Mm. Uh, and that, of course, meant that they were a lot less effective than they should have been or could have been had they pursued that further. Yeah, I, I wanted to say on, on active imagination, because as, as you said, through the mentorship with you two, you have shown me techniques which have, well, you've shown me many, 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 many different things. But on active imagination, before I met you two, I would do it. And I think I was doing it right, but it was never particularly 
profound. It was more sort of just watching things happen. And it was, and you know, and then afterwards I'd be like, I wonder what that meant. And then of course, because I was more into the more um, woo woo side of Jung. And again, it's, it's like most people in the audience, it's not our fault. It's just, there's no one there to, to guide us in the right direction. Everything automatically became collective symbolism. I was like, oh, it's a circle, that's the self. Therefore it's Jesus talking to me, more or less, more nuanced than that. But the, the self-hypnosis technique in that manual that, that we put up last week, it's on page 54, if I remember correctly. I've put it on the actual page itself. That's what I do for active imagination now. And it's, it's much, much more powerful because it gets you into a state, not only with rapport with your psyche, which is probably the most important part of it, but it gets you into the right headspace as well. It, can't, it calms you down. It filters out a lot of the, the nonsense you pick up through normal consciousness. And you can just ask questions and things will present. I did it, did it last night, as, as, uh, two nights ago, I think, as, as you guys will know. And um, I asked one question and got a completely different answer back. But it was probably an answer I needed to hear more than the question I asked. And it was really, really, really profound. So if you guys are interested in that type of thing, and this is not a, a clinical endorsement, but purely for self-development reasons, the, the method for that is in, is, is in the manual, if you'd like to check that out, of course. It's a relatively simple technique, isn't it? Mm. But, you know, it, it's what you can derive from it. It's a seed that grows. You know, it's like Milton Erickson said, you know, acorns know how to become oaks. They don't need to be told. It's a natural process. Yes. What, once you embed a, a technique like that into yourself and then you use that and you get confirmation from your psyche that it's agreeable to you using it like you say the signal to noise issue will disappear because you don't need to generate the noise to look very often the act of looking generates noise if you're you're passive but polite about asking your unconscious to help you very often the noise immediately disappears and the signal is present and that kind of training is all about developing the signaling system. Uh, and then it's about patience and pacing yourself uh, and how you, you access the psyche. Other things then will start to work for you much quicker because you're doing exactly what Jung said to do, which is not to put any kind of theory in the way of your experience. You have a method, of course you do. Yeah. But the method is not the theory. Well, it, it doesn't inter it doesn't interfere with mm. the process, does it? No, that's right. Uh, I think, as you were saying, Steve, uh, if if you don't do that, then you you're not really sure what part of you is operating yes. for start. Yeah, that's true. And you yeah. just run away into fantasy, and it, yeah. and it's unhelpful. So it does yeah. help to have some structure. It does. It does. Uh, and when 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 you start to get communications back, mm. uh, and you realise this isn't you, mm. at least it's not your ego personality yeah. or its associated complexes. Yeah. <clears throat> You know, and very often, you know, people say, well, the anima, you know, the anima's a woman and all the rest of this. Well, the anima will turn up however it wants to turn up. And it's much better to let that happen. And it might be in the form of an image, but the image is not a woman, but it's the message. And with you, James, without disclosing what you did, because that's obviously private for you, that was your anima delivering the message to you. Yes. But if it was the anima in the form of a woman then that image itself becomes a distraction. That's what I was expecting as well. I went in sort of, um, I didn't use it in front of my head. I was like, this is most likely what's going to happen. And and that's actually how the session began, was it was through, and it, the, the images that come to mind, it has to be a case of just let, let it happen. 
it, it, what have I been asked before? You know, specifically how will the images come to mind? How will the sound come to mind? I like the the blackness of my eyes being closed started to form a dancing woman to begin with, and I was like, she's coming over to me. Then the whole thing changed, and a new message came straight down, crystal clear, and I was like, ah, okay. And it went way back to childhood straight away. It was solved. Or it didn't solve. It helped clear up the meaning behind some of the things that I was doing in my life and some of the things that were happening to me. So, yeah, yeah, the psyche will do what the psyche wants to do. And all we, all we can do is just listen and smile and say thank you. Yes. Exactly. Yes, and it's, it's a clear example of something that you couldn't have constructed consciously. You were tempted to do that in the beginning. And like you say, just the unconscious did its own thing in the end. So, yeah, it's best not to put that no. in the way. No. Someone um, made a comment on YouTube that Jung said that uh, he gave up hypnosis because it was groping around in the dark. Frankly, that just shows that his knowledge of, of, of hypnosis as a method was severely limited. Yeah. And it actually shows the limit of his competence in that specific modality. That does not, does not diminish Jung's achievements or his knowledge or his insight, except in the specific sense that he was no good at hypnotherapy. That's it. Mm. Any hypnotherapist at all who was to say that about himself or herself would in effect be saying, I'm crap at this, there's no point in me doing it. And basically, that's what he said. Um, but James Hall, for example, explains what was wrong with Jung's technique from within an orthodox Jungian perspective. Ernest Rossi has basically set that aside and he's moved on. He was the editor of the collected papers of Milton Erickson. Milton Erickson's most trusted students, as well as being a Jungian analyst and a Freudian analyst and a psychobiologist as well. Rossi's an exceptional person. Um, I highly recommend his works, highly amazing the, how far he's gone in, in, in developing it. So, yeah, w w with that, there's a signal to noise, uh, as we were saying, but there's also the differentiation between the messenger and the message you probably saw the imago of the messenger and then you received the message yes so the image of the dancing woman was no longer required but you needed to hear the message that she was bringing and as paul said that was just the psyche and you said as well that's the psyche doing its own thing without any kind of superimposition or expectation uh, and that is the best, that is the cleanest, that is not groping round in the dark at all. Far from it. Far from it. it it's, it's like a waking dream. And the only, the only way we could probably say to people is like, you know it's real. Like, you, you'll know versus whether or not it's fantasy. And it's, it's because when, say, this dancing woman appeared, I knew it was a dancing woman, even though it wasn't like a crystal clear picture. And I knew who the dancing woman was as well, without actually having seen her. In real life, or without really seeing her face there, and I was like, "Why are you showing up?" It's it's very very strange, but it, it is the same thing as dream analysis. It will just happen to you, and and all we got to do is just enjoy the journey as as it goes forward. Because I was impatient with this stuff in the beginning. Certainly, I really really was trying to look for answers, but the psyche won't give you answers because you demand answers. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's a good point because it's it illustrates how it's necessary to disentangle yourself um, from cultural myths and cultural representations because they are distractions. 
Uh, and again, over the personal myth, this is why you have to find your own and not someone else's, whether that's Carl Jung's or it's Star Wars or, or whatever, wherever it is, if you go in in the right way, you will find it. Uh, and when we work with people, very often it's a case of, of, if you like, detoxing them from the wrong kind of influences and effects that they've accumulated in an attempt to help themselves, mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. But they've become distracted and absorbed or preoccupied, very often by theories. Because where there's a lack of direct experience, there's usually, in an intelligent people, an overabundance of ideas about things that haven't been lived or experienced. You find that practically minded people who are also intelligent tend to go and do it. And they, they, they then are able to communicate what's necessary for other people to do it for themselves. Yeah, so they're action orientated. Action orientated, yeah. yeah, rather than uh, just fa falling back on, mm. onto an abundance of theories yeah. or competing theories. Because the one thing that you will find, you know, plenty of in this field is an abundance of uh, theories, not just Carl Jung's. Carl Jung is, is, is just one character in the ecosphere of psychotherapy. You know, the, the ecology of it, there is so many different schools and they all possess the truth and the soul truth and nothing yeah. but the truth and everybody else talks crap. That's the way they are and they're highly political and yet there is only one fundamental human nature. Only one. And if you're going to work with that, then it's practical tools that you need. Then interpret what comes up and find the best fit, which of course is why Jung said set all theory aside. All of it, including his. And the best practical way of doing that is derived from the best advances in hypnosis, which were beyond what Jung was doing in his day. And I'm, I'm sorry if this offends some of these people who lack actual real world experience and just like to philosophize you know, and, and, and quote Carl Jung. Anybody can quote Jung. His, his collected works are vast. Dead easy to do on Google, just cut and paste a, a critique based on, on something that you want to, to prove because it's supporting some kind of complex belief that you may hold yourself, which is necessary to sustain your own self-esteem or whatever it, the problem is with these people. But really, in the real world, where you're helping other people, or even in your own private world where you're helping yourself, the actual confrontation or the meeting, because it needn't be a confrontation, it needn't be a fight, but the actual meeting with yourself properly on the terms of the unconscious rather than of your ego, that's where you should go. And hypnotherapy, at its highest level of resolution, technically, is unequaled. I was thinking about what you said, Stephen, I was thinking about something that, that, that happened yesterday too, and, and that is the fact that for a lot of people, eventually the solution is quite simple. Mm. They mm. expect it to be more earth-shattering or more complicated. Mm. Very often that really is. Yes, it is. And, the, and sometimes I think that's because when they, they come into therapy, there's this, that kind of layering effect that's just, you know, added insult upon insult upon insult. Yes. And, and they're kind of buried under all the, the proliferation of theories and things that that, mm. that they've been exposed to and That's um, a really good point. if you can just strip all of that away and get to the yeah you know the core yeah. of things it, the solutions are very often simple it is yeah totally totally agree with that and which is why Milton Erickson was as efficient and effective as he was yeah. um, he relied very much on the unconscious doing all of the work and thereby reduced the stress an individual person had to feel consciously that is contrary to a lot of psychodynamic approaches. It's contrary 
to a lot of um, CBT style approaches, including cognitive analytic therapy, CAT, and all the various other mm. uh, variants on that, which is very egocentric. You know, uh, this gets a person to access the unconscious and then just ask the unconscious to do what is necessary internally, almost without bothering them to get them right. Now, the downside of that psychodynamically is that you don't necessarily get any insight at all. You just kind of literally wake up one day and feel a lot better. Yes. It's like, how did that happen? Yeah. Well, it's because your psyche's done it all in the background without needing yeah. to bother you. Mm. You know, and, and for some people, that's preferable. Well, it's, so, it's what some people ask for. Indeed. In so much as they don't mm. demand a deeper explanation. They just no. want, you know, no. symptom removal. No. And, and, and you have to respect that. You do. You do. Um, I don't know if I've mentioned this case study before. It might be a pertinent one to show uh, what can happen. It was, um, I'm sure I won't be, I, I try and call recall back cases that are around 30 years old, so yeah. um, there's, there's been a sufficient passage of time. But this, this person was a police diver and had seen a lot of traumatic events in his life. Um, and he had eczema. Uh, on the palms of his hands, his wrists, and on his ankles. Mm. Mm. And he he also had an essential tremor. If so, or, or you know, his hand would shake. Uh, it was there most of the time. It was his right hand, only his right hand. And that was only attenuated if he drank alcohol, which would relax his muscles and that would go away. And he would have successfully drunk something. Now, I'm not sure if I mentioned this one before, but I think it's pertinent in this context. And uh, he, he came uh, to see me, and he was uh, not specifically asking for hypnotherapy, but he, but he wanted some form, in some way, to be able to relax. And I thought, well, obviously there's a hidden story here, and there's a symbolic conversion reaction from something, some kind of trauma. He was a police diver. Uh, he didn't know that I was also a former police officer as well. So I had some uh, you know, insight into the kind of things that he, that he was likely to have gone through. So I wondered whether, whether it was a trauma. Very often these things are specific traumas or the accumulation of traumas that had caused this dissociative reaction. And then the eczema that just wouldn't go away. And then he told me that he was um, a Christian of a specific kind. Um, he was um, Scots, Scottish uh, branch of the church. He was a Presbyterian, I think. Uh, so he was quite disciplined in the way that he would think of himself. So therefore, you think you you take on the notion then that this person is likely to be impacting himself through that filter, his religious belief, because this is where he would mm. gain his uh, his objective understanding of his morality, which you would say, James, in a top-down way. Yeah. So there's, there was a, a clue. And then, of course, there was the eczema. And uh, he said he'd had that since he was a child. Okay. So is there something related to that? And, oh, no idea, can't remember a thing, nothing. No, no, I don't know what it is. Uh, all the resistances were there. And the resistance was, was very strong because he wouldn't remember anything at all. Um, so... I said, well, we can use some we can use some gentle hypnotherapy, and we used Chevreau's pendulum to demonstrate to him that his unconscious mind would cooperate. And of course, you never know; mm -hmm. you have to ask. Mm -hmm. But it confirmed that it would, which was good for for me. Yeah. 
And so uh, we did uh, a very gentle hypnotic induction. And once we'd got the, uh, the idiomosa signaling confirming that the unconscious was open to communication with me, I just asked if it, if it would be all right if this person would, at a time that was right for them, remember what he needed to remember without feeling any anxiety or stress. And that when that time happened, he'd be able to come back and tell me and we could move him on. And he got up and he looked out the window and the lights w w were going down, street lights were on. It was pretty, pretty late at night and uh, there were traffic lights there and the traffic lights were on red and I could see past him the traffic lights were on red and he went to amber and he moved a little bit like an idiot motor green and he, he jolted didn't say anything I just okay note that he, he's still semi in this this trans state and we said our goodbyes and he went and I watched his car I went down to the traffic lights they're on red amber green and he drove through and I just felt I have to watch him till he goes and watched him go. there was a slight hill where, where we were based at the time and up the hill over the hill disappeared as if he was going back into the unconscious anyway he got back in touch and he said I remembered as I went through the traffic lights I remembered and now I have to tell you and he came in and he said that when he was a child his mother would give him uh, cod liver oil every morning and he would take it on the spoon and then, and then she would hand him a glass of water and he would drink the water to wash it down and he would go to school this one morning he just refused it would make him sick and she said, you'll be the death of me. Off you go. So off he went, thinking, great, I didn't have my cod liver oil. And then he came home from school and found her dead. The shock of that, and being a child, and the Christian guilt, which, you know, complex if you like, which then impacted upon him, was sufficient to create eczema, a stigmata. He was crucifying himself through guilt. He was then, with his brother, asked to travel down, his elder brother, to travel down by train to Birmingham, where, where he had relatives. And the train stopped. Uh, he had to catch a connection. Got off on, on, on the station platform. Uh, and he, he went to a kiosk with his brother, and he was served a drink. And the man handed him a glass, like his mum would do. And he reached out to take it, and he couldn't, and his hand started to shake. And those things had stayed with him for 40 years, unresolved. So unresolved that he'd suppressed the connection from consciousness, but still bore the stigmata, still bore the guilt of the shaking hand. And he dealt with so many traumatic events in his life. And he was so well protected and shut down. It was Nothing was going to get to him unless his unconscious said, it's okay now, because in the sense of a transference, going back to the beginning of this podcast, the, this particular therapist, because he's asked in the right way, politely, and reassured there will be no violent abreaction of emotion or contact with things that will hurt or disturb you, we will allow you to remember and to associate those memories again. And we were able then to remove the shaking hand, to lift the guilt out from him, and to remove the eczema, which we did in subsequent hypnotherapy sessions. I can say now with all confidence, no other form of therapy would have achieved that. None. And yet it was at a psychodynamic level of depth. You had the conversion reaction, which Freud and Breuer would have recognised and understood. You had all the elements that Jung would have understood about a dynamic unconscious and about complexes and about guilt and religion. All of that was there. But it took hypnotherapy to access it 
and then to remove the physical symptoms and restore that person back to wholeness where they felt they were unburdened by guilt for the death of their mother and he'd carried that through the whole of his police service and I'm mentioning that not because there's anything special about me but because the technique works it really does you have to open yourself up to the way that the psyche itself wants things to be done do not impose anything upon it you will become ineffective can I just say Steve there's a lesson mm. there for the therapist in that too about yeah. not assuming that you've actually healed that person yes uh, which is important for the transference too isn't it it's Absolutely. an important part of it yeah that you don't you don't take yeah. credit yeah for that yeah um, absolutely oh gosh yeah, yeah. Um, if, if I'm superstitious about anything in that regard it will be this that the minute or the moment the very second that you feel any suspicion that this is something special about you that's yes. achieved that yeah whatever gift is working through you mm. or in the relationship mm. you have in the moment to that person will absent itself yes. in punishment for your hubris yes, yes. and I yeah. know that well that is said. true yeah. I know that that is true yeah it is a moment of grace it for is. those of you who are spiritually orientated. Yes. This comes from outside of you. And the and again I agree with Jung. At that point, only things, only religions can name those forces that are present and they are transpersonal outside of you. Yes. And that's part of the respect that you must have, that you are privileged enough mm. to have been part of a process that has helped another human being. Yes. And and that is of such immense value in this world where each grain of sand that helps another person to relieve their suffering is a good thing but do not attach yourself to it yeah. it's not you no. you know you're the no. messenger not the message yeah. it's so important and that's part of the way that we train uh, therapists as well hopefully to have out of respect for the psyche that naturally arising uh, inner humility however you may manipulate your persona in order to help another person on the inside you need to know exactly who's in charge and it's not you and that protects everyone it does indeed it yeah. does it does it gives you boundaries because you have a boundary on the inside that stops you inflating if you don't have that and then you get off on power and on influence then your boundary will inflate to fill the room and it will consume the people you're supposed to be helping and that becomes a problem in their life as well as your own I actually know the guy, and you know, he didn't remember me because he was a lot mm. older than me in the police. But mm. you know, the police divers were were an elite, so in that sense, I knew him, and I knew him. As, as, he was a red bearded guy. He was a rustic sort of quiet, sensing, mm. diligent. I'll just do it kind of guy, yes. and uh, very introverted, and uh, wouldn't have wanted any kind of mm. penetration mm. behind his persona. That's how he he struck me, and I remembered him because of those qualities. But. Um, Fortunately, he didn't remember me, because mm. if he had, that would have been an impediment. Yes. 